Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show 17. So we're past the, uh, if you will, midway point. What we're going to be doing tonight is continuing on our discussion of escrow and title insurance. Uh, the last time what we discussed was the fact that in California, we utilize something called an escrow company, and the people that do this work are called escrow officers. The concept behind this is that once we have a transaction or, or if you will, an accepted offer on a piece of property. So in other words, what's happened is, is that the buyer has made an offer to the seller and then maybe we've had several offers and counter offers back and forth until we finally got something called the meeting of the minds. And at that point in time, what will happen is normally, normally the real estate agent for either the buyer or the seller, depending upon where the property is located, which county, and this is always by custom, it's not by law, will call a escrow company. And, and I mentioned the last time that in Southern California, we have escrow companies are one organization, and then we have title insurance companies, which is another company. In Northern California, the escrow and the title are usually done by the same company. So, for example, if you're driving around uh, town in Sacramento and you happen to see out in uh, one of the shopping centers uh, a sign that says financial title or first American title or Chicago title, I would probably venture to say the people that are in that office are escrow officers. And then normally, usually at a central location, you'll have a title office or title officers. Those are the people that will do the title searches uh, or searches of the public records, which we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, I mentioned to you that this process normally starts where the real estate uh, agent contacts the escrow officer, opens the escrow, and also provides a copy of something called the residential purchase agreement, and also, if you remember, at the same time, it says joint escrow instructions. That's on the uh, California Association of uh, Realtors form that we normally use. And what that that purchase agreement does is it's uh, it's the contract, but another way to look at it, it could be like you could look at it as a list of things that need to be done prior to the home actually being sold or purchased by another individual. So it's the escrow officer that's going to sit there and is going to take the order, is going to take the contract, all of the documents that come into the escrow. They're going to hold on to them. They're going to also receive all the funds, and the funds may be coming from the buyer, may be coming from the seller. There may be bills from different types of vendors that are going to come in, like title, uh, not title, but termite companies or home inspectors. They're going to pay all of those. And then once all the conditions in that particular um, contract have been met, then and only then are they going to then take and uh, record all of the documents after they're signed by the clients. And then when that's finally done, they're going to transfer the funds or distribute the funds out. And actually then finally the people that are buying the property are going to be able to get the keys, the garage door opener, whatever's necessary to go into the house. Uh, a couple other things I mentioned during that time was to remember that the instructions are to the escrow officer are joint meaning that neither the buyer or the seller can just decide for whatever reason to cancel the transaction. It takes both sides to do that. And uh, they also, the buyer or the seller, can call up and do something like, say, give me my money back, 
or charge the seller this or charge the buyer that. It takes joint instructions to do that. So anyway, we discussed that process, and, and the thing that we want to keep in mind is that we're dealing with transactions that involve normally hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it just would make pure common sense to not want to turn around and give somebody a large amount of money in the hopes that they're going to sell you a piece of property that's going to be clear of all title defects, and it's going to actually be what they represent. So what you want to do is have somebody that actually is going to hold on to this money and make sure all those contractual things are taken care of. Now, where we left off the last time is I was just going through to show you an example of the financial portion of uh, an escrow. In other words, where the money comes in and where the money goes out. Uh, in a minute here, I'm going to show you on the, on the document camera where we're going to just give you a little bit of the scenario. And then I'm going to go through the two different financial statements, one for the buyer, if I remember correctly, and one for the seller. And remember, usually what ends up happening is if the buyer is paying one thing, the seller may be very well receiving some money from them. So we're going to be, what I was trying to emphasize during that period of time is that sometimes to understand these escrow instructions, or at least the financial aspects of it, it may mean, it may need that you have to sit down with the buyer's financial information and the seller's. So you can see the money coming in one side and going out the other side. Uh, and sometimes people will ask me, why is it necessary for a real estate agent to read and understand these? The basic thing that I can really tell you about is a couple things. Number one is that when you think about the amount of time and the amount of effort that you have put into finally finding somebody the house that they want to buy, or if you're working listing a house for sale, the amount of time you've put into listing the house for sale and finally getting a buyer what you would really not want to have is have the whole thing fall apart at the very end during that escrow process. So that's why it's important that you understand what's going on so that if something comes up, you can step in and, if necessary, get documents or help get expedite things to make sure that the transaction is going to go along smoothly. The other reason why it's important and that also that you as an escrow uh, real estate agent show up during the signing of these papers is that you have to put it this way. You have been working with these clients for a long period of time. Probably, at least in this transaction, the one that they know the best happens to be you as the real estate agent. And all of a sudden have somebody else come along without you being there That's going to, and you're, they're probably going to meet the escrow officer for maybe 30, 35, 40 minutes and if there's something that they don't understand, your clients don't understand, the escrow officer may or may not ha have a relationship built with them like you do, where it might be a lot easier for you to just say, well, wait a minute, let me take a minute and explain how this works. So that's why it's important you're involved in the process. So what I'm going to do is start off by just going very quickly over that uh, financial information from the transaction we're going to be doing, and then I'll be going over the actual uh, uh, statements. So what this is just showing you here, this is the escrow example showing you that the sales price is $800,000, that the first trust deed, and as you remember, when you read the book, you'll find out this first trust deed happens to be what the buyer is going to get. They're going to get a loan in the amount of $640,000, and if you do the math, 80% of $800,000 is $640,000. So what they're doing is they're getting a loan for $640,000, which is 80% of the value of the property that they're buying. They're going to get a second deed of trust in the amount of $80,000. So what's going to happen is, is that they're probably 
they're not putting down the whole 20%. They're only putting down, they're putting down something less than this. So they're getting a loan. We don't know at this point who this loan is to. This could be an owner-carried-back loan. In other words, the seller is going to carry the financing, or they're going to go get a second from another company, even possibly this lender. They're going to have a down payment of $80,000. We don't know where that's coming from at this point, but we do know this could be coming from savings in their bank. It could be coming from the sale of another home. So there could be a lot of places this is coming from. They're going to have a broker who originally listed the property who's going to get paid $48,000. That's the gross commission. And if we do the math on that, 6% of $800,000 is $48,000. So that's where we get that from. Of course, that $48,000 is probably going to be split between the listing agent and the selling agent or you know the person that listed the property for sale, the person that is working with the buyer. And then, of course, those agents are going to be splitting that commission between themselves and their broker. So it's quite possible, for example, if we had one company listing and one company selling, it could be possibly that, uh, uh, for example, one co- per people at a listing, that broker is getting 24, and if you're on a 50-50 split with your broker, it might be that you're getting 12 or 50% of that 24,000. So this could be split up in a lot of different ways. You also have some existing liens on the property. So you have a first deed of trust for $290,000 that's owned, owed by the seller. You have a street assessment bond that we talked about the last time. This happens to be a bond in which uh, the owner of the property maybe possibly has been paying some additional payments, and that bond might have been used for things like uh, anything from street lights to storm drains or whatever, but it's something in addition to the property taxes. But apparently, according to this, that bond is going to be paid off as part of escrow, probably because there's not very much left on it. And then there's going to be a CLTA policy, and CLTA means California Land Title Association title policy. It's going to be paid for by the seller in the amount of $2,165. And then the other important piece of information here is we have a closing date of June 1, and they say 2020, which is out into the future. But the idea of June 1 is the fact that what we're having is we need to know that date when it comes down to doing any kind of prorations, figuring out, for example, you know, how if the, for example, if the, if the uh, existing property owner has already paid the property taxes for a certain period of time, it can be where the seller may be due some money back because they've paid those in advance. We also may find out that the buyer now has to, and, that, and where that money comes from is that the buyer is putting some money in and it's crediting it back to the seller, okay? So, again, we need to know what that date is. Now, going from there, these instructions are, there's always two sides to them. On this first page, we have the buyer's instructions, which it says buyer final statement right here. And on the opposite page, we have the seller. And most of the time, it's been my personal experience that the buyer sees theirs and the seller sees theirs. They don't each see each other's statements. But you as an agent might be the one that needs to look at them so you can understand them. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do like I did the last time. I'm going to kind of zoom out here a little bit so you can see what's here to start with. This just means the name of the escrow company. It could be it could be anybody. It could have been financial title First American, Chicago, whoever. This is their address, their P.O. box, and their telephone number. 
up here is where we're doing something called uh, where wh which property we're talking about. So this, they say, is 123 Purchase Lane. But anyway, we're talking about this is the address of the property. This is who's buying it. This is the closing date, and this is the escrow number. And as I mentioned before, the escrow number is typically a number that is assigned by the company itself. And what it amounts to is that they have their own methodology on how they assign numbers. So in other words, when the, when the broker calls in and says, I want to open up an escrow, the escrow officer goes into their computer or goes into some form of a log and looks a number up and assigns whatever the very next number is. And that escrow number is something that they use to track that transaction through the entire system. In fact, it's a good idea to know what that number is. So therefore, especially if you're trying to track backwards, you know, like maybe the escrow is closed a few months ago and you want to find out some details, knowing that escrow number sometimes can help the uh, escrow officer go back and pull the file. So that's why that's important. Uh, going over here, I, as I mentioned the last time, anytime you get, have a financial statement, they break it down into categories. So up here is the category of financial, and this is what we're talking about. Now, I'm going to start, once I show you this, I'm going to blow it up a little bit. So just get the idea that we have categories. We have financial, we have prorations, we have title charges, and we have escrow fees. Going across this side, we have what we call debits and credits. And the example that they utilize in the book is they're saying debit is something that you owe. In other words, like you're writing a check for something. And credit means that you're getting something back from somebody. So I'm going to go ahead and blow this up just so we can see the categories. So the first part right here is just talking about the total consideration. In other words, the buyer is paying $800,000 for the property. The next thing is, is that what we're going to do, let me... Trying to make all this stuff work on the screen is a little bit tough because of the size of the type. But what this is showing is that there was a cash deposit of $5,000. There was a second cash deposit of 86000 There was a new first trust deed of 64000 and a second trust deed of 64000 And what this is is this is money that's coming into the transaction. There was some prorations that needed to be done. Prorations means uh, that there was, in this case, property taxes that had been paid. And so this is just giving you what they are and how much they are from this date to this date. These are other disbursements. This is fire insurance. Then down below here is the fees or the cost for the title insurance premium, sub-escrow fee, recording a grant deed. And this could go on and on with a lot of different, especially when we're talking about recording. There could be a lot of documents that need to be recorded depending upon the transaction. Down below that is an escrow charge, okay, that the escrow company is charging. So we have an escrow fee, a messenger fee, and a loan tie-in fee. And you may have other fees that you'll see in these statements. A lot of times, especially as a real estate agent, what you may want to do, especially on your first few escrows, is to sit down. Uh, I would even recommend that it would be a good idea to contact the escrow officer and maybe go down there and buy him a donut or uh, some donuts and a cup of coffee or something, sit down and take some time and go over these set of instructions so you understand how this all works so that when your clients come in to sign the documents, if there's something that maybe they don't understand, you'll be able to explain it to them. 
And it's you, you're the one that who has been working with these clients. And so, for example, we all know that there are certain types of people that no matter what we try to explain, they all turn around and say, oh, I understand, just where do I sign? So that's one extreme. And on the other hand, you have where you need, you have, as we commonly refer to as the accountant or the engineer type that wants to know every single solitary detail, probably has a great uh, book already written out where they're recording everything, has their calculator with them. And you have to be able to address both types of personalities. So it's important that maybe you have spent the time going over these because you understand what kind of a client you have. So very, very important. Going down from there, this is the uh, additional fees you're going to have for the new loans. So you have a loan fee of $6,400, which is like a point. It's 1% of the loan. You have a credit report that you've been charged to get. Uh, by the lender in order for you to get check what your credit background is. You have an appraisal fee that you've paid to have the property appraised. You have a tax service. You have a document fee. And you have interest that you've been paying on the loan from this date to this date to, till the close of escrow. Okay? And then this gives you a total amount down, and it shows that you do some form of a refund. Okay? And what happens is, is both of these figures down the bottom have to balance on both sides. On the seller's side, same situation, same company, the difference being the seller's financial statement, same property, same closing dates. The difference is, is what are debits and credits. So under the financial, you have a total here. You have, this is the total consideration, 800000 That's a credit to the seller. You have a new tr second trust deed is $80,000. This is where you have the prorations, and this is a credit back for the taxes that the seller had paid. Down below here, you have a payoff charges, and this happens to be the loan amount that's going to be paid off. You have a deed of reconveyance that has to be recorded. You have some other disbursements. You have, this is where you're going to be paying the escrow, uh, the uh, real estate agent broker's commission. You have title charges. You have a title policy. You have a sub-escrow fee, documentary transfer tax stamps, so on and so forth. You also have some escrow charges that are going to be paid. And then again, down the bottom of this, you have some net proceeds that you're going to get out of the transaction of 171000 Looks like $550. And then down in the bottom, this has to balance, okay, the balance of the debit and the credit, not on the seller versus the buyer. So that's fairly quick. It's just the idea that I wanted to show you what those financial statements look like. You should be looking for those. Uh, you know, escrow officers are really good at having you come in, take a look at them, making sure that you understand what they are. Uh, anything that can help your client understand what they're signing is very, very important because uh, when they come in, normally that appointment where they're going to sign all these documents is usually anywhere from about 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes in which they're going to sign and go over all these. So anything you as an agent can help expedite this process and, and so that your client will know what they're signing is very important. Uh, just to go on with a few other things, uh, this particular page right here, and I'll probably have to zoom back out again. Okay, they talked about proration. And proration just means figuring out, or I'll actually read what it says for proration here. Uh, it says proration is the process of proportionally dividing the expenses 
or income, so in other words, things that you know cost you money or income coming in, to, to the precise date that escrow closes or any other date previously agreed upon. Normally, it's the date at the close of escrow, though. It enables the buyer and the seller to pay or receive their proportional share of expenses or income, items that are commonly prorated are things like property taxes, fire insurance, interest, rents. Remember, rents are collected at the beginning of the month. So if you've received, if you have a rental piece of property that you're selling and you've already received the rents and you're going to close escrow, say at the halfway point, say at the 15th of the month, then that means you get to keep half the rents and the new buyer gets to keep the other half of the rents. So very, very important. Uh, some of the other thing might be like homeowners association dues might be another thing. It, there might be if you have any special uh, bonds that you're having to pay, street improvement bonds, Melarus, anything like that. Those things are normally prorated, okay? Uh, they do talk down here about how they do do this proration. Uh, I have spoken to several different escrow officers and anyway, for the purposes of the book, what they do is they tell you that they use a banker's month. And what they basically do is in this particular case is they take and on the, on the bottom of the fraction, they always use, according to this, they always use 30 because there's 30 days in the month. And in the numerator, they use the day that you're going to close. So, for example, it says, it says, how do escrow companies use the 30 days as a base month? For example, if an escrow closes on the 10th of the month, all prepaid rents for that month would constitute 9 30th of the rent left to the seller and 21 30th that would go to the buyer. So the idea is that on the top part of the fraction is the days that have gone by so far and on the bottom of the total days of the month. Uh, if the rent is uh, $2,000, the seller's portion would be 9 30th of the $2,000 or $600 and the buyer's portion would be 21/30th of the $2000 of 1400. Rents belong to the buyer as of the closing date. So the whole idea is that what you should get out of that is that it's important to who pays what or who receives what based on the day that you close the escrow. Very very important fact that you understand that uh, and depending upon the size of the transaction, what's involved, when you make out, if you're listing the property for sale or you're making a purchase offer, you may actually sit down with your clients and do something called a net sheet to figure out how much the client's going to get, especially if you have a lot of rents that are due or a lot of taxes that have been paid. And that may become a very important factor because that could involve several thousand dollars worth of money that either the buyer has to pay or the seller is going to get back in the transaction. So you as the agent need to know how to calculate that and also understand how that proration works within the escrow portion. And again, if you're new to it, what will happen, what's important is that you meet with the escrow officer and have them go over all those details before the clients ever come in. Very, very important. Some of the other things that you're going to be running into are termite inspections or termite reports, these are required not on the refinance of a home, not on the home that people live in, but when a home is sold. Part of those requirements are is that normally once you have an accepted offer from the buyer, in other words, the seller has finally accepted the offer, one of the things that the buyer and 
in a lot of cases, the lender is going to require is a termite inspection. And what they want to do is they want to make sure that, hey, you know, there's no dry rot in the house, that, you know, that the beams in the floor are not falling apart, that the walls are solid, you know, there's no water leaks or damage being caught, or there's none of our friendly termites crawling around, and termites can do a lot of damage. So what happens is we have a termite inspector come out. They're licensed. They come out. They do this inspection. As a result of that, they do a report. The report will identify a lot of different things. It may say that there's dry rot in, in, the, in the decking and the wood deck in the back of the house or in the front of the house. They may say, for example, the toilet in the bathroom's been leaking and the floor has got some dry rot. They may say things like, you know, the posts that are, uh, for example, on the deck are touching the ground and the termites are starting to come up into the wood and destroying the wood. With the idea in mind, it may look okay right now, but the termites are eating the inside of the wood and the next thing you know, the whole thing's going to collapse. So these people do this kind of work. And when they get done with it, one of the things they do is categorize what they have found. And there's two categories, if you will. And they actually call them sections, okay? And they break them down into section one and section two problems that they have identified. So section one means that there's infestation damage and it has to be fixed. It's required work and it is usually paid for by the seller. So in other words, the termite inspector's gone out there and said, you know what? There's dry rot in the floor beams underneath the bathroom, and you need to replace that. Or the wood that's in the floor has got dry rot. Or there's termite damage. You have to get it fixed. So in other words, the damage is there. It has to be corrected. There's also something called Section 2, which is the potential for infestation or damage. This is where they recommend the work, but the extent of the repairs is up to the party. So, for example, that could constitute things where maybe the termite inspector was out there and said that they noticed something was wrong, or not even really wrong, but there was a potential for something to go wrong. They disclosed that as part of their report. The seller could decide to fix it. The buyer may require the seller to fix it, or the buyer may decide, you know what, you know, I'll take care of that myself. But the fact is, is it's something that does not have to be done. It's not something that's destroyed right now, but potentially could have that problem. They could find something like, something that's loose, maybe a board's loose. Uh, there could be a lot of different things that could be a problem, but it's not a problem right now. Those things are left up to the buyer and the seller to negotiate. What's required, though, and I think uh, down here along the way is somewhere it says that the, the Section 1 infestation thing has to be fixed. So any Section 1 problems you have have to be corrected before the lender is going to lend any money, for example. And I think it may say this down here. It says, most lenders require pest control inspection report before making the loan, and every VA and FHA loan application requires an inspection report. And then it just tells you what the cost is. It says the usual cost of the inspection of the report is about $65. The cost in some cases or some areas may be as high as $175 or $195. Uh, let me see if there's anything else in here. Okay. Uh, to finish that off, it says, if the escrow holds two pest control reports, escrow will notify the broker and get the instructions from both the buyer and the seller. Uh, the question of which party pays for the necessary repairs 
to obtain something called the notice of completed uh, uh, notice of work completed report is almost the matter of the local custom. In most areas, the seller usually pays. However, FHA and VA termite certificates may and repairs may. All, uh, may, repairs are always paid, and then I think on the next page, always paid for by the seller, actually. Okay, paid for by the seller. So anyway, what it is is that you want that work done, and, and by the way, when they do their inspection, uh, that inspection only lasts for a certain period of time. It escapes me right now how long that period of time is. But what happens is is that if you do a termite inspection, for example, uh, when I got ready to sell my house uh, a few years ago, I decided to have the inspection done before I ever put it on the market. And the reason why I wanted to do that was because I did not want to have, I knew that during that period of time that, you know, the market was really, uh, there was uh, a lot of the people that would normally do this kind of work were in high demand. If something was found, there was a possibility, and it was something I couldn't repair. It may take me several weeks to even find somebody to do it. So I decided to hire a termite inspector before I ever put it on the market. He came out. He found things that needed to be fixed. He fixed uh, quite a bit of it himself. I had to hire some people to fix some other stuff. I fixed some of the stuff. But the point is, is when it was done, I was able to put it on the market and then say that I had a clear termite report. Now, one of the things that happens is that termite report that I had done by the inspector when it was fully signed off was only good for a certain period of time. I cannot remember for the life of me how long that is. I want to say it's maybe like 60 or 90 days, but you can always check with the termite person. What happens then is that if I if I exceed that time, then I have to get what we call a reinspection. And then normally the termite company just comes out, goes back over again, sees if there's any other infestation or any other damage that's taken place since the last time they were there or did the work. And if not, I pay a fee. It's usually a small fee, and then I'm done with it. And uh, th then that satisfies the requirements of the lender and satisfies the requirements of the buyer. Okay? So anyway... Then finally, it says here that the broker has to maintain a copy of this inspection report uh, in their folder. Okay. Next thing they talk about here is fire insurance. I think I mentioned the last time fire insurance is very, very important. You are not going to get a lender to lend you any money at all unless the property is insured for fire. The other thing I think I mentioned about, too, is, is that normally... Whenever your buyer finally, whenever you have the accepted offer, one of the things that you want your buyer to be doing is to contact their insurance agent immediately and start letting the agent know and find out what information they need, find out if they'll insure that property, what their premiums are going to be. And I think I gave you an example the last time uh, possibly where I had a home where I want, had had an insurance company but when I decided to get insurance, have the same insurance company that insured my cars insure my a house that I had, they wouldn't do it because they don't like the risk in that area. The point is, is I may very well find out that the company that I currently use now that insures my home now that I live in may not be willing to insure the new house. Why? Because maybe, uh, especially like in the areas where we live, like in El Dorado and Placer County, some of those homes are around areas that have a lot of trees, 
There, uh, maybe it's a shake roof and it's more susceptible to fire. Maybe there's brush that grows up around the area and it's more, which makes it more susceptible to fire. So the point is, is that you may very well find out that you're going to need to shop around to find an insurance company that is going to go ahead and insure it. What you don't want to do is have it down to the wire. You're ready to close the transaction only to find out that you can't, your, your buyer still has not secured a company that can provide insurance for that house. And the next thing you know, the deal doesn't go through for that one reason. So that's why it's important to get that taken care of right off the bat. Um, after that, we're going to move on now to something called the title insurance. Okay, this is the second part of the chapter. And title insurance, again, has been around for many, many, many years. The whole idea of the title insurance is, uh, for the, for, in my mind, is to start off with is to make sure the person that you're buying the property from actually owns the property, you know, can actually sell it to me, you know, that they're not doing something that's fraudulent. Now, what happens is, is that when that escrow officer receives that order to open up the escrow, Right after they open it up, one of the first things that they do is they contact, if it's Southern California, they contact a title insurance company and open up an order with them. If it's Northern California, they call their title plant and open an order with them. And usually within about 24 hours to sometimes as much as 72 hours, or depending upon their workload, they're going to produce something called a preliminary report or a preliminary title report. Now, what they're going to be doing and we'll talk about here in a minute is they're going to be searching the public records and they're going to be looking for certain kinds of information like who owns the property, are there any liens, judgments, what's the current status of the property taxes, things like that. So I want to point out some of those things here. So it says in the chain of title, every recorded change of ownership and or claim of ownership on a property is in the abstract of title. Abstract of title is just another term that we use for a title report, if you will. Certain states call it an abstract of title. If one person sells a property to another, a recorded public history of a specific property called the chain of title is compiled. So as you go from seller to buyer, buyer to seller, so on and so forth, you create this chain of events. These public records include files at the county recorder's office is one location. Second location is various tax agencies, the federal court clerk, and the secretary of state. So they're checking in a lot of different places. All such information about the people and their real property, and the people become important because if something is against them, the property could be used as collateral or have a lien put against it that it needs to be sold to satisfy whatever that judgment is or that problem is. So again, and their real property is stored in computers within the grantor-grantee index and is referred to as the title plant. As I mentioned in the past, it used to be that this was a lot of paper records. When I was in the business in the late 70s and early 80s and probably even people before before me, we had paper records, we had microfiche records, we had handwritten records, we had journals. There was a lot of stuff that had to be searched by hand and compiled by hand. Now everything is computerized. Okay, so it makes things a lot easier, a lot more efficient, makes it a lot more cost effective for title insurance. Going on from there, but that is called the title plant. Okay, that's the term. 
A title insurance company is, is primarily concerned with a search of the public records, which includes the federal court, the county clerk's office, the county recorder's office, and other sources. This search enables what is called uh, the chain of title. Okay? So then it goes on there and it talks about the functions of a title insurance, what title insurance really does. And let me see if we can go through this. It says it has title insurance companies are regulated by the California Insurance Commissioner, who currently right now is John Garamendi, who if he wins office, he's looking to be, um, let me see, uh, what is he, I can't remember what office he's learning. I think it's Attorney General or something like that. He's not running for governor that I'm aware of. And the, uh, uh, the one that's lieutenant governor right now, he's running for the uh, state insurance commissioner's office. And it's almost, they're not quite trading jobs, but it's kind of funny the way it's moving around. Um, fee schedules must be available to the general public upon request. Okay. Uh, to guarantee solvency, each title company must set aside reserves. Okay. So you, any insurance company has to have a certain amount of reserves. So under this, it says title insurance uh, insure, insures a lender and the property owner for additional fee against losses that result from imperfections in the title. Title insurance companies examine the records documenting the chain of title, review any risks that might not be found in the public records, interpret legality, and help the seller correct <laughs> any defects. Okay and ensure a marketable title. When, I, when we say that it helps the seller correct any defects, in other words, if during this title search it is found that there's something wrong with the title, like a lien that's existing on the property that the seller didn't know about. An example that I had when I refinanced a property a couple years ago, and I think I've mentioned this before, is where I had an equity line of credit against the property. That we had a deed of trust recorded. I had not used that in a number of years. Because I hadn't made any payments on it, you know, because I didn't owe anything, I hadn't borrowed anything on the line of credit, I just kind of, I, I forgot about it. Well, what ended up happening is when we did the title search, that shows up. Title report shows that. <coughs> the, loan, the loan officer that I was dealing with called me up. By the time he called me up, I knew that, that what the problem was, that I had forgotten that. And all it amounted to is that I went back down to the bank and made sure that we closed that or cleared that, uh, that trustee that was on the property. Okay, that's all it was for. Okay, but anyway, they, they, they'll tell you if you, what you need to do to fix it. Um, uh, title insurance is only paid once. It's only paid once, so you're not paying it every year. You pay it one time, and then you're done with it. Uh, unlike auto or fire insurance, which must be paid annually, and so, and then, and then with the um, some of the things here, they give you a little diagram, and it says the they talk about the uh, preliminary title report. They say the first step in the title search is for the escrow officer to order the preliminary title report. After the buyer or the borrower completes a statement of information, a title search can be done. That statement of information is recording enough information about the individuals that they can do the search. Okay. A preliminary title report is a report showing the condition of the title at before a sale or a loan transaction. After the completion of the transaction, a title policy is issued. Uh, the preliminary title report consists of the following. It'll do this. 
Number one is it's going to provide the name of the owner and the description of the property. So it'll say Mr. and Mrs. Jones. It'll say if they hold it as joint tenants or as community property or as tenants in common, whatever. It'll show a description of the property, meaning it's going to give the legal description of the property. So if it's a lot block, <coughs> it'll say lot five of the Pat Hogarty subdivision unit number two, <coughs> or if it's a government survey or it's a meets and bounds, it'll give the legal description. And the second thing it's going to do is going to list, it's going to have a list of any outstanding bond, taxes, bonds, or any other kinds of assessments against the property. The third thing it's going to do is it's going to identify any covenants, conditions, and restrictions. Those are private property restrictions. <coughs> Sometimes we call them the homeowners association, but in reality, they're not the homeowners association. What they are are covenants, conditions, and restrictions, <coughs> excuse me, are placed on the property by the developer, the land developer. And basically what they do is they talk about for example, how wide, uh, how, how wide the side yards have to be. They'll cover things like, can I, if I can have, uh, that may tell me I can only paint the house certain colors. Uh, they may talk about things such as, uh, like I talked about where I live, for example, when I put my trash cans out on Sunday night, they must be behind the fence or taken back by Monday. I can't park my car in the street overnight. All these restrictions are covenants, conditions, and restrictions. Also, in contained in that, if they were going to have an active homeowners association, it'll talk about that. It'll include that in there. Those things are something that the buyer should read, and they're very important. Some of them are fairly some of them some of those documents are fairly thick, and uh, the reason why is which important is so that the buyer, when they get the property, knows what they can and can't do with it. One of the things that they're getting ready to buy the property and they find and their intention is, for example, if they live in the area where I do and their intention is to park their motorhome in their driveway uh, when they're not using it. If they live in my area, you can't do that. You're restricted. You can only have your motorhome in the driveway for 12 hours, period, on one day. And then it has to be moved. Okay, You can't have your boat parked in the driveway. So if their intention is to buy it and park it there, and then after they move in, they find out later on they can't do it, they may be angry. So they need, that's why you need to read these things. The next thing is, is that they need to have uh, any recorded liens or under encumbrances that must be eliminated before any loan is made. So in other words, any second deeds of trust, mechanics liens, Tax liens, IRS liens, anything like that that would affect the property is important. Also, they'll call out if there's any recorded easements against the property so that you know that there's a PG&E or a SMUD easement or any other kind of easement on the property. Um, this form here is just something as an example of what we call the statement of information that needs to be filled out by the people, and the reason for this is that when they run these ch checks, they're going to be looking for not only at the property, but they're going to be looking at the people themselves to see if there's anything within all of those various agencies that they've done that may affect the property. So that's why what they'll do is they will have this statement of information that has to be signed or filled out that will ask for things like last name, first name, date of birth. Now, some people say, well, why in the world would they want to know all of that? The reason why is your name may be fairly common, like Smith or Jones or Brown or Wilson or something like that. 
and they find some kind of a thing that shows up in one of those public agencies, they need to have enough information so that they're able to say, oh, that's not our client, it's somebody else. And how do they do that? They have it because they have this form filled out. Anyway, so you have all of this information that is filled out by the clients, okay? Very, very important. Uh, you know, are you married? Are you divorced? Are you widowed? Whatever, okay? So that's a form that needs to be filled out. There are two agencies that you deal with that issue title insurance policies. One is called the California Land Title uh, I'm sorry, California Land Title Association. The other one is called the American Land Title Association. So what they're talking about here is just talking about those two associations, and they're the ones that set the guidelines for the title policies that you will get. Okay? And so basically what they're doing here is they're just saying the California, uh, in California the standard title insurance policy is the CLTA, the California Land Title Association policy is the basic title policy. It may be issued or <clears throat> issued to insure a lender only, just the lender, or an owner only, or it may insure both the lender and the owner, a joint protection policy. The standard policy insures the lender only unless the owner requests, the, uh, requests and pays for additional coverage. So this talks about what... What this policy does, <clears throat> so it goes on from there. It says, besides insuring against all items of record, the CLTA policy offers protection against many off-record risks. Some of these off-record risks include forgeries. So if somebody sold the property and it was for, like a forged deed, that's why we're, we're, we have everybody get everything notarized nowadays. Uh, acts of minor, so if you had somebody do something, that wasn't of age to be entering into a contract, and incompetence, acts of an agent whose authority has been terminated, invalid deed delivery, unrecorded federal estate tax liens, undisclosed rights of husband and wife, when a chain of title states unmarried, and the expenses including attorney's fees incurred in defending title. That's what the title policy does. So what the title insurance company is trying to do when they do their search is to see if any of these circumstances are there. They're trying to reduce their risk before they issue the policy. Okay? If they miss something, if they make a mistake, then what ends up happening is them that covers that risk. Okay? And so we'll go from there. They do show you an example in the book of a title insurance policy. There is a title insurance policy listed in the book. This is just an example of one. Uh, these are like most insurance policies. There's a lot to them, a lot to read. Uh, I would recommend that you would take the time, if you're an agent, to read this to understand what the coverage actually is. By the way, a number of these title insurance companies have some really wonderful documents that help explain their coverage. Uh, for example, financial title that comes in and is active in our internship program brings in all kinds of guides and useful booklets that helps explain how all of this works. In fact, they even have an agent booklet that talks about how to hold title. And they also have, and I have a link in the, in the um, in, underneath this chapter in the Blackboard website to their website that walks you through all of this. So if you ever forget it, you can go to their website, financial title, and look up any of this information that you need. So anyway, this just gives you an example of the title policy. 
This right here is what they call, you'll normally see this in a title policy, it's called the uh, Schedule A. It's going to talk about the amount of insurance, which is typically the amount that you're going to buy to cover that associated risk, like the purchase of the house or the loan. It's going to give you the date. It's going to give you the name of the insured. This, in this particular case, it happens to be the financial company that you're borrowing the money from. That's who you're insuring. What they're doing is making sure that, hey, uh, you know, in case of a default, I'm the guy that's going to get this money, all right? This is the interest, so it's telling you right here that the estate is an interest in land which is encumbered by the insured mortgage is, and he tells you it's a condominium unit. It tells you that how the people currently hold title. So they're holding it as husband and wife as community property. Remember, there's a lot of different ways you can hold title. This happens to be one of them. Down below here, we have the uh, deed of trust. We have the dates. We have who the, who's borrowing the money, the trust door. We have the trustee who's holding, holding it in the event of a default. And we have the beneficiary, in other words, who's lending the money down here. This happens to be the part that's the legal description of the property. This is parcel one and parcel two. What it amounts to is that you're going to own a unit. That's the first part. And then you're going to have an undivided interest in the common areas of the rest of the condominium. So in other words, undivided meaning you can't go out and say that corner of the pool is mine. Just an undivided interest. So it's giving you the legal description. And then after that, they just give you a lot of... Uh, Legal language, if you will, a lot of legalese are in the policy, you know, that'll list all the stuff. The other association they talk about here is called the American Land Title Association. And they also have their coverage, and it says down here, uh, I'll just read this real quick. It says the American Land Title Association Policy Alta is an extended coverage policy that ensures against many exclusions of the standard CLTA policy. So it's taking it beyond the CLTA policy. Uh, the Alta policy, which includes um, competent survey or physical inspection, is usually required by California lenders and out-of-state lenders who are not able to make a personal physical inspection of the property. Okay, and then it goes on and says purchasers should note that there are still certain exceptions to the CLTA or the sta CLTA standard policy and even to the ALTA extended policy. You know, so you should know what you're protected for and what you're not. There is no insurance coverage for the following defects known to be insured at the time the policy was issued but not not designated or um, I can read that designated in writing. So in other words, if you didn't tell them, Okay, it's not covered. And government regulations regarding occupancy and zoning. So if something is not zoned correctly or you, or the property has something, a building on it, and it's not fitting the zoning restrictions, it's not covered by that policy. Okay? So anyway, that just gives you an idea that there's different types of co uh, coverage. They also talk in here about um, who pays for these title and escrow fees. Remember, that it is a negotiable item. Normally, they're customary who pays for them. Uh, you can find, um, you know, that in one county, they split them 50-50 customarily. In another county, the seller may pay certain fees. In another county, the buyer may pay. But it's customary. You can negotiate them. Uh, the last part of this chapter here talks about something called the RESPA statement. I think, I cannot remember if it was in this class or not that I went over this. Here's the concept of the RESPA statement. 
RESPA means the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act. What the purpose of the act is to make sure that consumers know what in the world is going on when they go and get a loan. And there's three parts to this the way I look at it. The first thing is when you get a loan, when you finally decide the company you're going to go with, you're going to get from that lender something called a good faith estimate. That good faith estimate is going to list all of the costs, okay, projected costs of getting that loan. That's part of this. And what's important about this document is that you, if you're married, you and your wife sit down. I visualize because when I do this, I'm sitting at the kitchen counter with my wife going over all these fees so that we understand what this loan is costing us so that we can make a decision whether or not we want to go forward from there. In addition to that, I'm provided a booklet, okay, and it's a booklet that comes out that tells me what each one of those fees means. So it'll tell me what an escrow fee is, what a title fee is, what an appraisal is, so on and so forth. The last thing is, is at the close of escrow, I'm going to get something called a HUD-1 statement. This is going to tell me the actual, where did the money really go? And so what happens is this act is going to require it. This part I just told you about here, this is the part that talks you about other provisions of the act. This is where you're supposed to have the uh, good faith estimate. Uh, this is where you're supposed to be having the booklet furnished to you. And then this is where you close the escrow and where you get the HUD-1 statement. Those are the three parts. So it's before, a booklet to understand it, and after. Before and after. One's an estimate, one's an actual. What does the statement look like? It looks like this. Don't, fall, don't die when you see this. What this is, is it's just a breakdown of all of the costs and where the money went. So you know actually where did you pay those fees. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try zooming up here a little bit. This is called, up at the top, right here is called a, uh, you know, I'll, I'm, if you can see from up here, I'm going to zoom in here a little bit. This is called the Department of Housing and Urban Development Settlement Statement. This is the name of the borrower. This is the name of the seller. This is the property and its location. This is the place of the settlement. And this is the name of the lender and the settlement date. Okay, so it's giving you all just general information. Over here on the left-hand side is that you're going to notice that there's a series of codes that go down here. These codes actually marry back to that book that tell you what each one of those things may uh, mean, so you can go look it up. But this is going to be a summary right here of the gross amount due from the borrower. So this is telling you, this is breaking all those fees down here. This is the gross amount due to the seller. Now, when we say due to the buyer and due to the seller, what we mean is that due as a result of this transaction, okay, money that they're going to get kind of a thing, okay? So this is a, a summary of that expense. This is amounts that were paid by or on behalf of the borrower. So things like deposits, loans, so on and so forth are put in this category. This is the amount that was paid by the seller. So you get the idea that this statement is broken out into seller and buyer, or, or you know, and buyer and seller. Down the bottom down here, we have cash that gets goes to the uh, that's dealing with the borrower and on the other side is with the seller. So get an idea that it's categorized. It's not just like we're just throwing figures around this categories for this. 
The other page talks about the actual settlement statement right here. So this is the second part of it. Okay. And again, when you look at your book, which is where you're probably going to see it, remember these codes that are over here on the left-hand side mean something that you can look up in that HUD booklet that will explain in detail as a definition for every loan, for every one of these line items, there's a definition in that booklet that explains what that is. But this will show you right here, this is paid from the borrower's funds, paid from the sellers. This shows you the amount of uh, commission here. This is breaking down the loan fees, the appraisal fees. It's showing where all the monies are going. Okay. This is items required by the lender to be paid in advance. Okay, so those are all listed. Down the bottom down here is escrow and title charges, where all that money went and who paid for that. Down here is government recording fees. So when you're paying to record documents and documentary transfer tax stamps and all that, that's all recorded and it's set out here. And down here is any additional things that you may have, such as a survey, if you had to have a survey done, uh, if you had pest control, sub-escrow fees, title fees, whatever it is, is all going to be listed in there. The point is, is that the purpose of this act is so that people that are borrowers, that are borrowing the money, are not going to be taken advantage of. The whole concept is to disclose to them all of their fees and all of their costs up front, and then when you're all, and then define what they happen to be, and then at the close show you where your money went. Very important fact. Uh, again, what you want to keep in mind is, is as you read these pages, keep in mind that you're studying this stuff. You're reading the chapter. And when you really think about it, and I've held this book up before, remember that when your clients are getting ready to buy or sell or refinance a house, they're probably going to be dealing with something out of each one of the chapters in this book. So you have to keep that in mind when you're dealing with the clients. If it took you a long time to understand what was going on, can you imagine your poor client that has only 30, 40, 50 minutes or an hour to read this stuff? Very, very important. And you don't want to make it so that because they misunderstand something or don't really, uh, you know, don't quite, maybe they think they're being taken advantage of and it, all it really takes is a little bit more of an explanation. You don't want that thing to make the deal blow up completely in your face. So it's really, really important. Escrow and title is very important, a very important process. The thing is, is that those people work really hard. They do a lot of work for us. They make sure the deal goes smooth, but you really don't know it's really happening. They do their job so well that it's happening in the background. And uh, if they do their job well, they really don't get much credit. If they don't do their job well, they get a lot of pro they get a lot of blame. But anyway, with that, I think that'll bring to the end our chapter on escrows and title insurance. And uh, besides that, I want to thank you very much for watching, and I'll see you back here the next time for the next show. Have a nice day. Bye bye.